0: Welcome to The World of Aeora, a news and lore podcast about the Pillars of Eternity Games, as well as Obsidian Entertainment's upcoming release, Avowed. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of The World of Aeora. I'm your host Eric, a.k.a. Gingerino. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode as we dive into the history, lore, and game mechanics of the Pillars of Eternity games as we gear up for the release of Avowed. For those wondering why we pair all those games together, it's because they share the same fantasy world known as Aeora. And so we're going to dive into Pillars of Eternity and look at all that stuff so we can understand the world that Avowed's going to be taking place in. We can walk into this new game with a full understanding and a full breadth of knowledge of what's going on in the game, have a deeper impact with the stories and the characters and whatnot. Today we're going to be doing a second part of a series on the Huwana Peoples that are from the Pillars of Eternity 2 game. That's the Pillars of Eternity 2 Deadfire. So uh, I covered in the last episode that in Pillars of Eternity 2 Deadfire there are four major factions that kind of are interplaying in that game. One of which is the Huwana culture and the Huwana Peoples. They are an ancient culture of people that were at one point very, very powerful we one of the superpowers of the world, but now they are just merely a set of tribes that live on islands in this archipelago known as the Deadfire. They have a sort of similar government from island to island, but they generally operate within their own localized kind of system. We talked about the religious caste system that exists there, the kind of the upper class, middle class, and lower class, and how they all operate and how their culture works. So if we're going to get into today's episode, perhaps consider going listening to Juana Part 1, and then that'll kind of lay the foundation for what's going on here, but I'll fill the knowledge gaps in as we go. As well in Pillars of Eternity 2 Deadfire, there are three other factions, which we'll go over on some other episode in the future. There are the two Merchant Party classes, which would be the Valian Trading Company and the Royal Deadfire Company, each from their own empires, one being the Valian Republics and the other one being the Rawatai, which are actually ancient distant cousins of the Huana people. And the last faction being the pirate faction, of course, that exists within an archipelago within the world, the Principi Sen Patrena. So, we'll talk about those in its own episode, but today we're going to finish talking about the Huana peoples. We're going to dive more into their actual culture today. We're going to be talking about their values and things that they like and things that they don't like. Uh, We'll maybe get into some of the key figures in their history and stuff like that. Almost all the information I have is going to be coming from the Pillars of Eternity guidebook, Volume 2. That's the actual written official lore from Obsidian Entertainment that goes with Pillars of Eternity 2. It's not about the game, it's not a strategy guide, it's just lore. So if you're a lore nerd like me, you can pick yourself up a copy on Amazon, It's published by Dark Horse. It's an excellent t- time if you're into this world or you just want to learn some more. So with that said, let's dive into today's lore. I'm curious, what exactly did you find there? Last we left off talking about the Huana peoples, we were talking about the major city that they, uh, that is in the Dead Fire Archipelago that they all live in, which is the city of Nekataka. And I wanted to rem- I want to remind you and point out the difference between this major city within the Dead Archipelago and the way the rest of the island tribes work. because there are some key differences within Nekataka that are different from how the rest of the Huana peoples work. How the Huana typically live, um, they have a, a series of virtues and ways of living. And it doesn't match how you live in the city of Nekataka. For example, if you're an island tribe and there's danger in the shores, you just travel inland to remain safe. If you have a business or something that you're trying to operate, you're trying to sell pelts or whatever you're doing, uh, and the area doesn't have an abundant resource of that, you pick up your hut and you go somewhere else. But in a city like Nekataka, which is made out of stone and all that kind of stuff, it, it It's solitary, it's stationed, it's where it is. You have to bring things to you. If there are dangers and troubles, you have to stay and defend. And there are walls, which is very counterintuitive to the people of the Huana. So here are some facets and traits of the Huana culture. First being fostering. Children are born within villages and are primarily raised by their birth parents, but it is the responsibility of the tribe to nurture and educate the young. Relatives may accept children into their household for learning vocations or deepening their understanding of folklore. Within the Mataru, that's the upper class of their caste system, the chieftain heir is responsible for fostering and training the most promising warriors, while the eldest priest prepares the minds of those designated to rule within years of careful instruction. So this gives you an idea of how they do their child rearing as a community and as a culture. And it's still assumed that the mom and the dad do a lot of the legwork, but that it is definitely a community effort, which I think is one of the best ways of doing it. In my personal opinion, Um, I know my wife and I, we had our first child 10 and a bit months ago, and we were completely blindsided by how difficult it is to expect just two people to do all of this work. I mean, yeah, we have family that we can rely on when we really need it, and they will be here in a pinch if there is ever an emergency, of course, but I think it's different in something like this, where the culture is that it's expected that the other relatives will come over, like they don't have to be asked to come over, it's just part of your role in societies to come and help nurture and educate these children, possibly even take them into your home to teach them a skill, Uh, so there's, I think there's a massive difference between a culture like that and a culture like ours, not saying ours is inferior anyways, I just there was some observations that were made as a new parent. And I really respect this kind of community way of raising a child. It's a lot more difficult as a parent because you have to let go of control. You have to have other people influencing your child's way of thinking and how they do stuff. And that can be that can be a bit scary. But that also shows us as the players how the Huana people actually work and why we can see that the tribes themselves are very close-knit because they all helped raise each other. They all know each other intimately like family. Another facet to the Huana culture is the idea of nomadism. So that is like nomads, you know, moving around and that kind of stuff. And I've already kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, But this comes from millennia of island living, and that has made them, as the book here calls it, transient and a mobile culture. What they tend to do is that whether they rely on hunting and gathering, if a resource in an area have diminished, the tribe will pick up and move to a different side of the island that they are living on. If the island is depleted, they will actually move to a completely other island and allow that island they were on before to replenish its resources. So they'll kind of cycle through an area in the archipelago, letting nature run its course so that it can kind of bring these resources back for when they go there. So you'll see the Juana doing this. You know, if living in a particular spot is not providing what they need as a peoples, then they will just pick themselves up and they will go somewhere. If there is a threat that is in the area they'll just pick themselves up and move somewhere else as a result um things made with stone or things made with any sense of permanence is not very common and you'll see this when you're going into pillars of Eternity 2: dead fire you see a lot of these island tribes they have grass and wooden huts things can be taken down easily or abandoned you know without much care and can be set up again very quickly you won't really see a lot of stone buildings and stuff like that i mean obviously you will see some of that because when you as a player character enter into the game you're in this kind of new time where you have these other people from other nations and cultures coming in and influencing the tribes but large in part for millennia anyways this is how the huana lived you didn't really have stuff like that concepts like walls or fortresses are viewed with confusion and disdain often serving as impediments to the beach or casual freedom of movement that's a quote from the actual book itself so like even the idea of walls is like why would why would you why would you have walls like a it just gets in the way and b like why like you can't take it down you built a stone wall you can't take it down it's there forever it takes so much work to build like why not just put up a, a wooden hut thing that you can take down really quickly or you can get rid of or you can reuse into something else you know to them it doesn't make sense it's confusing. And people often view it, like it says here, with disdain. Like, that's, that's stupid, or that's wrong, or you shouldn't be doing that. The need to pack lightly has deeply impacted the huana's treatment of land ownership and worldly possessions. Heavy or non-essential goods are luxuries reserved for the mataru, which again are the upper class of their caste system, while the kuaru, which are the middle class of the caste system, are expected to keep their only their tools. And the raparu, which is the lowest class in this caste system, are made to transport food and building materials. In this quality, the contrast between tribal living and the great city of Nekataka is obvious. Permanent settlements forge a reliance on goods imported to the island and influence of outside economies, leaving the Juana more vulnerable to food shortages as well as the political maneuverings of the trading companies. So you already see two major ways in which the city living in Nekataka versus the island living of the rest of the Juana are different. One, with fostering children, you might not have that same sense of community in in the city of Nekataka. I mean, you might, but there's a lot more striving to survive there's a lot more like i need to take care of me on my own right because there are food shortages and who are you going to feed first when you have enough food for you your wife and your child are you going to feed your child or are you going to feed your neighbor right like what are most people going to do you, you, you see how that kind of goes versus when you're out on the island everyone's taking care of each other partly because you're really relying on everyone staying alive to make sure everyone else stays alive you need these people to live on these islands whereas in nekataka there's kind of this idea that you probably could do it on your own Obviously, the Raparu probably have a little bit more of those old sensibilities, living in the poor part of the city, uh, pro- very much needing to rely on each other to survive, but whether or not they're actually doing that, you can kind of see when you play the game. And there are other parts about being nomadic that affect this culture as well. One thing that we might not consider when just sitting down to think about it initially is the idea of written records, right? So would you carry a library around with you on your back? No, probably not, because... That's going to add up really quickly. It's going to become very heavy. And is it something that you can actually use other than holding onto the knowledge? No. What, what? I mean, you want to hold onto knowledge, but what else can you do? Well, you tell stories, like with oral cultures. You tell stories, you write myths, you have songs. Those are the kind of things that nomadic cultures would do. And so the Juana don't really have a ton of written records. They do keep track of seasons and the migration of animals and things like that. So they do have written records, but they're not carrying around the Alexandrian library on their back. So don't expect a lot of tomes of knowledge about the island living for the past 50 years or anything like that. It's just not going to happen. These different ways of living have led to complications for the Huana as well, with the introduction of the Valian Trading Company and the Royal Deadfire Company, as well as the pirate faction, the Principe Sin Petrena, because they have different ways of living, and not only are those ways of living possibly contradictory to the Huana or threatening to the Huana, it also might be attractive to other types. So Raparu individuals, people in the lower class of this caste system, might look at these other societies and think, oh, that actually looks like it's a lot better for me. And But people in the Mataru class, they'll obviously look at this as threatening. And so we have this kind of like conflicting ideas going on. But besides just the political ideologies, you also have like ways of approaching the world. Like, what the natural resources of the world mean to my culture and my people versus others. So, for example, Luminous Adra. Luminous Adra is a resource within this game's world that is very, very important. It's like regular Adra, but super shiny and way better. If you don't know what Adra is, I did an entire episode on Adra, the soul, and the reincarnation cycle that exists within this world. But in short, Adra is essentially this very special, kind of like semi precious gemstone, and it conducts soul essence that is the stuff that your soul is made of transmits through audra very well i wanted to do my regular souls made of essence and bodies made of carbon thing but someone on discord pointed out to me recently that i do say that a lot i mean i do say that a lot <laughs> oh man um but yeah so it, that's what audra does is it it um conducts soul energy and so it's used a lot in animancy which is the science of souls it's a soul study stuff you know so it's taking souls and actually studying it on an academic level so this adra stuff is very important in this world because it's very closely tied to the lore and the metaphysics of how the soul works and how the mechanics of the soul work because you can use adra in laboratory settings to actually perform these experiments luminous adra is essentially regular adra but far more effective far far more effective and it can only currently be found in the Deadfire fire archipelago so it makes sense that the Royal Deadfire Company and the Valian Trading Company in particular would come to the the Deadfire Archipelago in the hopes that they can mine this resource and take it for themselves. But to the Huana, this isn't something to take for yourselves and buy and trade and sell and, like, make a name for yourself. You know, it's something that's part of the land. It's something that's sacred. You know, they don't want you to just take all of it away and then sell it. They, I'm sure they, they use it, obviously. They use Luminous Audra for their own reasons. And this has led to some conflicts between the Huana peoples and the Valian Trading Company about who should own this stuff, who has the rights to mine it, and what's the right thing to do with this resource. That's because the Huana people, they have their own set of values and stuff in the world that are important to them. And thankfully, the book here that I'm reading from actually lines it out pretty well of the virtues and vices. So things that the Huana people value and things that they think are abhorrent. So here are the virtues of a one person at least the culture that they're raised in honesty bravery strength of soul utility and self-sacrifice so honesty and bravery we know what those are honesty is being truthful bravery is you know i guess just standing up in the face of scary things (laughs) you know being brave strength of soul is tied to the world it's not just about having a like oh man what a strong-willed person you are literally the strength of your soul um Because as souls in this world go through the cycle of reincarnation, they get a little bit weaker and a little bit weaker. Just, you know, it's just, it's really wearing and tearing on your soul, having to constantly die and be reborn again, that kind of thing, which is really, I'm really overviewing the lore there, but that's kind of what's going on. So a strength of your soul would mean how strong is it after going through all these cycles? Utility, which would be kind of like pragmatism, I guess, but like what function does this thing serve? It's, It's important to have something that works and is useful, and that makes sense if you're a nomadic culture living off the land, and lastly is self-sacrifice, and that makes sense with a lot of stuff that we see too, especially the caste system, in particular the lower class of people, the Raparu, they're expected to starve to death if there is a season of, there's like a, a drought or a famine, like if there is no food for the entirety of the Inhuana peoples, Somebody's going to die. It is expected that people in the lower class will accept their fate and die of starvation because you know someone has to die, and as long as we know who is going to be, then we can react accordingly. That's that's their culture. That's how they do stuff. So self sacrifice is important. The vices of a Huana person, uh, there's only three: are indecisiveness, laziness, and selfishness. And this makes a lot of sense. Indecisiveness. I mean, when you're living off the land, when Every day is, well, maybe not a struggle to survive, but, you know, it's harder living. Being indecisive is a really, really negative trait to have. It's going to lead to a lot of problems. I do, personally, a lot of outdoor leadership skill training. I've been involved in programs, and I have also taught programs in outdoor leadership, And most people think that when I teach outdoor leadership and survival to people that it's about learning how to start a fire with these materials or learning how to do first aid when someone has a broken leg and stuff like that, which you do have to do. You got to learn those skills to be an effective leader out in the woods when you're leading groups and stuff like that. But the thing that we actually try to teach most is a level of competency when it comes to decision making. We don't try to tell you what the right decision is. We don't try to tell you you have to make this choice in this scenario. What we try to do is we try to educate you on the scenarios you're going to be in and then put you into practiced situations, you know, simulated situations and see what decisions you make and then you have to think upon them. And we really, really try as hard as we can to get that idea of decision-making skills inside of you. Because when you're a leader, uh, and even if you're not a leader, even if you're just part of a group as a follower being decisive matters it's the difference between make it or break it you know laziness that also makes sense as well everyone's working together just like the child rearing thing we see all the kids are you know being raised by the parents but they're being raised by the community so if you're being lazy that means you're not playing your part everyone has a part to play in this island living to make sure we all survive and thrive if someone's not pulling their weight the entirety of the tribe will suffer as a result and lastly selfishness and this is countered to the self-sacrifice, which is a virtue by these people. Selfishness is looked at as a vice. It's something that like, you are serving yourself more than the group. And that is a big threat because if you start taking more food for yourself and some of the Raparu people have to die as a result, and it comes to light that, oh you actually could have given food away to some of the Raparu. Not only is this really tragic because a person has died and they would actually mourn them. It's not like they hated the Raparu. This is just the way they live. They also, remember, utility is one of the virtues of the people. And now one of the Raparu is dead. We now have one less person to help things out. So now everyone has to work harder, possibly put themselves at risk, because you wanted a little bit more food and you didn't need it. So these are vices, according to the Huana people. These are the things that they would actively fight against. And so there we have some cultural influences of the Huana people. We have things like how they raise their children and how they live on the lands and move about, as well as their virtues and vices. That's a really core integral part of their, of their culture. Like that is how they express their culture. But where do some of these things come from? What are the myths and legends and foundations of the Huana that make them who they are? We'll dive into some of that right away. Great fetching feathers, lass. That was Isselmere. She likes your feathers. So the Huana people, just like any culture, they have myths and legends, and they have things about their culture that are very tied to who they are, and these stories are important to reinforce the values they have and the narratives they had within their culture to make the kind of citizens that they want to make. This is normal for any culture. And so a lot of these myths and legends and tales... Are important to the people of the huana tribes so some of the myths that we can talk about here are myths of things like the city of ukaizo which is their like lost atlantis type of thing it's their their mega city that apparently they had in their ancient society that had great technological advances and they were lived in perfect harmony blah, blah 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 but that city was lost to time and so there are the myths of the ukaizo city that shape their culture there is also things to do with Um, The gods, such as something called Ngati's Chosen, which is how they interpret the existence of the godlike race, which I'll talk about in a little bit. As well, there are things about creation and life and death, so they have their own creation myth about how the world came to be, and they have their own idea on death and how that operates, and we'll dive into those myths and legends right now. So the first myth of the Huana that I want to look at is the city of Ukaizo, which stands to be the great island paradise, the mega city of their culture, back when they were a superpower. Now, again, I'm going to reiterate, a lot of this is coming from their tales and legends and stuff like that, so I'm not going to tell you how much is real and how much is not, if any. That's something you can learn about from playing the game. I will bring it up if it's relatable to the lore, and I'll give spoiler warnings if there's anything to worry about. But... There are ruins throughout the Dead Fire Archipelago that point to the fact that the Huana people once used to live in a far more advanced state than they do now. Rather than just being nomadic on their island and they have, like, a kind of one government that they sort of abide by, but each island is actually doing its own thing, apparently they had a centralized government, like... That's what these ruins are pointing towards, is this one nation, this one culture of the Huana peoples that lived in peace and harmony amongst the islands of the Deadfire Archipelago. And the center point, the main location that was the hub for all of Huana culture and uh, society and everything, was the city of Ukaizo. Now, most people that come to the Deadfire Archipelago that aren't Huana don't really believe that Ukaizo exists. They think it's just a way for the Huana people to justify how much they cling to the past, because the Huana people will very often talk about, before the great cataclysm that destroyed our culture and made the way we are, we believed X, Y, and Z, and that's why we need to return to these traditions or embrace this way of living. That's how they hold on to the past, and a lot of people just think that the city of Ukaizo is this kind of pinnacle idea that they use to hold on to that, but the Huana people don't look at it as, as a myth that doesn't exist. They look at it as something that is actually real. They think that the city of Ukaizo either did exist or still does exist and is just hidden away. And they talk about Ukaizo in such a way to, like, get back to their former glory as a way, or to let go of the things that are holding them back now to embrace what made them so great in the past. The next cultural narrative or myth that exists within the Huana people are something called Ngati's Chosen, and in order to tell you what Ngati's Chosen is, I have to first tell you about the godlike race and also tell you about Ngati, who that is. The godlike are one of the main races in the games of Pillars of Eternity. So you got humans, elves, and dwarves. Those are the three main fantasy races that we're used to seeing in books and movies and games. As well, we have two unique races that exist in this world called the Amawans, which are actually what most of the Huana peoples are. And then there's Orlans, little hairy creatures with really big ears and they're a little bit feisty. Uh, But, you know, in general. Anyways, the last one of them is a race of people called the godlike. And they're not a normal race in the sense of, you know, two godlikes don't procreate and create another godlike. A godlike person is born from a regular set of parents. So uh, human parents could give birth to a godlike. Uh, All a godlike is is basically a baby that was blessed while in the womb and they are now born with physiological traits that mirror that of the godlike so depending on which deity you know like the deity of fire for example blesses the baby will determine what the baby looks like so they might have fire for hair or they might have sparks flowing out of them they might have lava on their skin whatever it is right so that's where a lot of these really cool fantasy elements get brought into the godlike In the huana culture when a godlike is born they are viewed as a omen or a message from one of the gods in particular, right? They're not thought of as prophets in the sense of, like, this godlike person has a direct connection to the god and can tell us what the god is saying. It's more that the god is using the actual person themselves as the message, right? It's almost like they are the living message of it. So, um, Mataru-class priests will heavily scrutinize the the birth itself the baby that is born, the parents, the circumstances of birth, the immediate environment around them, things that are going on with the weather, what the big political machinations of the world are. They will scrutinize everything around this infant's birth to determine whether or not the omen is positive or negative, to learn whether or not the message from whatever this god is, is a good message or a bad message. As well as this, of delivering a message of... of Cultural upheaval or some big change or some horrible catastrophe coming in whatever the message is that these priests infer On top of that These godlike are often born into uh, some sort of life destiny So part of the interpretation on the priest's part will be to determine what the purpose of this godlike's Life will be so if it has something to do with making crops then that means this person will now be solely dedicated to just learn about planting and learn about agriculture for their entire life. Which means that if you are born as a god, like in the Huana culture, your life is pretty much laid out in front of you. And if you're going to remain in this culture, if you're going to remain with these people, you have to follow that life to a T. Um, or otherwise, you're basically rejecting the culture around you. And, well, sorry for you, if you live in this time and place, you're not really going to get out of the Dead Fire Archipelago that easy anywhere else. So your life is pretty much not your own. And these godlike can be from any of the 11 gods that exist within the world. But there is one particular god that they want to pay attention to more than any other. And that is their deity known as Ngati. Ngati is one of the names for for a god that I've talked about before, Andra. Andra being goddess of the moon and of forgetfulness and of the ocean. Which comes as no surprise that these island-dwelling people would really worship and pay attention to Ngati, goddess of the ocean. So whenever a godlike is born that is clearly related to Ngati or slash Andra, uh, they really, really, really pay attention to it. They are, like, you know, the godlike are, like, kind of chief people already to begin with. Like, they're very important. And then people who are born as these ocean godlikes or these marine godlikes, they're even more important. Like, they're uber important. So they'll be scrutinized by probably many Mataru priests and... They will be, their life will be so controlled that there will be no room for anything anything else uh, other than the life that is destined for them. Traits of uh, Ngati's chosen person is they will be born with scaly skin. They'll probably have fish-like markings on their body, bioluminescent lamps, or other marine qualities about them. Uh, Takehu, one of the companions in the game, he actually has like what like looks like anemones for hair. Uh, very fish-like body, you can actually see the scales in his portrait that's drawn these people these ngatis chosen they are they're they're heavily scrutinized for a couple of reasons one that the huana really 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 worship ngati the second being that ngati is very tied to their survival because she's goddess of the ocean which is something that really <laughs> really affects whether or not they're going to live or die and how well that their year is going to be etc etc so they pay attention to ngati the most for that reason because it's also just practical as well, though, Ngati is kind of viewed as a trickster god by these people, and so trying to discern the truth of what the Omen is is difficult, and so they get a lot of people to pay attention to it. The next myth or legend within the Huana culture is their creation myth, and it's called Amira's Egg. Amira is, as far as um, scholars within the Aeoran world can determine, is the closest analog to another god that is known from the first Pillars of game as Hylia, so Hylia, as we know her from the first game, is one of the deities that exist within this world, and the Huana people know her as Amira. Amira's egg is the story of the creation myth, and here's kind of roughly how it goes. So before any of this, the universe, existed, essentially the gods, which are called the great beasts in, in the void, they existed like you and I or any other animal does. They lived in their own world and they were doing their own thing. And Amira is basically a giant bird. And, like, she's so big that her f- one feather on her is as big as any one of the islands in the Deadfire Archipelago. Her beak is taller than any mountain that could ever exist. You know, mythical stuff like that. Anyways, a great another great bird from beyond even their realm flies in and is very tired. And so Amira gives him a place to stay. And if I'm reading this right, essentially they mate. And so Amira becomes pregnant with an egg. This this dude takes off and gives her a feather, uh, which, uh, which possesses all the colors of creation, which lines up with Amira being the goddess of creation and of color and song and all that. Uh, but anyways, Amira, this like heavenly beast, if you will, that is a bird, lays the egg. And before the egg even lands on the ground or her pillow or whatever it was, um, the egg cracks open, and from the egg comes light and physical form. So eventually, our universe, or I guess the Aeoran universe, comes out of this egg. And all of the other beasts, all the other gods that are existing within this realm, they scatter to get away from this egg as the universe itself comes into existence. So now, like, here's the thing, is that, like, this universe coming out of this egg has kind of caused a little bit of an upset with the other gods because it's taking up a lot of real estate in their area. But Amira has... Motherly intentions with it because it's her egg, it's her baby, right? And so the universe is kind of her, so she protects it from the other gods, which actually lines up with a lot of other legends from other cultures within this universe because a lot of the other gods are elected as violent and shedding blood and hating one another and causing war. And in, uh Hylia, otherwise known as Amira, is often looked at as kind of the good god and is always trying to find non-violent ways to situations and but not that she's not willing to resort to violence to protect her young i guess but so like it's consistent in this culture as well so that's the story the creation myth within the huana peoples of this heavenly mythical bird mates with another heavenly mythical bird the egg is hatched and from that egg births the entire universe and amira this giant bird protects the universe from other gods that would intend it harm stuff like that that's that's kind of the short form of how it goes the last myth that i want to go over is called rikuhu's bowels and in my opinion this is one of the most interesting aspects of this huana culture that obsidian entertainment has made for us so thanks obsidian uh for giving me all this geeky nerdy stuff to just absolutely go bonkers over So Rikuhu is the Huana equivalent of another one of the deities that we know from the first Pillars of Eternity game known as Bereth. Bereth is the goddess slash god of death, doors, cycles, portals, etc. And in the Huana culture, Bereth or Rikuhu is explained by the existence of two eels, one called Kahopa and the other one called Tangaloa. So going off of the creation myth of uh, Amira's egg hatching in the universe coming out, um, Amira is protecting the universe, but she can't do it all on her own. And these two eels that exist, one being Kahopa, one being Tangaloa, they are becoming more and more hungry. And despite Amira's protestation, they decide that they're going to start consuming the very world itself. But even that isn't enough to satiate their hunger. And so they decide to start eating each other. And so you have these twin eels that are eating each other at their tail and so they're constantly consuming each other but then the, that means they still exist somehow and it's like it's this weird imagery it's kind of like an Ouroboros except there's two of them and it's this weird imagery of life and death and the cycle of reincarnation that exists within this world because as I mentioned Aora runs on a cycle of reincarnation you die your soul leaves the body goes to the afterlife we're gonna say And then after a while, comes back and enters into a new body. And boom, there you have a new person. And that cycle just goes on and on and on and on. And this cycle is represented by Rikuhu. And more specifically, Rikuhu's bowels, which is the idea of dying and then coming back. That's how they explain it with this myth. this That's how they explain the reincarnation cycle, is that you are alive, so you're in Kahopa, but then the Death Eel, I can't remember if this is the Death Eel, but Tangaloa then will eat, eat the life, and then boom, you are now living in the dead world. Right? So now you're in the dead world, but then along comes Kahopa again and starts eating the dead world, and along with it enters you back into life again. So you're constantly either entering into the bowels of kahopa or tangaloa so you're constantly entering into life and then into death and then into life and then into death again that's how it works that's the image that they use and they use this in their religious sermons and whatnot and a lot of huana people um they don't fear death just like a lot of people do in this world because of these kind of imageries and these understandings although this gives the huana unique perspective theologically about like well what would happen if we could get rid of these eels and our souls could then just enter into the, the great void where the other magical beasts and gods are, would we live in paradise there? That's a, that's a unique kind of thing that they can consider. And that's all the myths and legends that I actually want to go over today. There is more to cover in the book, but um, I'm already kind of pushing the 40-minute boundary, and I really don't want to go too much longer, especially now that I'm doing weekly content. I think we've gone over enough today. I think we've we've covered a lot. We've covered some of the values and virtues that the Huana people like, how they raise their young, how they're nomadic around the islands, some of the myths and legends that exist from there. We didn't really talk about any of the, like, saints that exist within their history that are very important. Perhaps I'll cover one of those in a bonus episode after this. Uh, But yeah, I think I'll do that for the Huana today, part two. Thanks, everyone, for listening. But before we jump off... Let's ask ourselves, is any of this going to show up in Avowed? Is an oath worth the weight of a crown? Now, I talked about this a little more in the last episode, because we're discussing the same topic, that is the Huwana people, and if you want to hear my thoughts on whether or not the Huwana are going to be in Avowed, you can go listen to that episode. Long story short, I don't really see it happening. There might be a reference, there might be one small interaction, but I highly doubt it's going to happen, but there's always a chance. But as for these things in particular, the thing that I want to bring up is, is that Obsidian is very good at selling you a realistic and lived-in world. And even their recent release, Grounded, where you're just a teenager who's really tiny and stuck in someone's backyard trying to get big again, like, they sell that world, they really make it feel like a backyard, and they really sell you the narrative of what's going on. Obsidian are masters at this kind of thing. And so while I'm not going to talk about the Huana again, I, I'm looking at all of this lore that is written down in this book that you, the player, might not even known was out there. This is an entire book of information about this culture, some of which you can only read in this book, and they took the time to write it down because this is a passion project for them. Like, they care about this stuff. Yes, you get a lot of this information from the game. Yes, if you go looking for it, you can infer a lot of this stuff. But there are specific stories about specific characters in the past that you're not going to find in the game. You can only find in a book. And how many people even knew the book existed in the first place? Like, I love that Obsidian put so much work into that. And I'm expecting the same thing for Avowed, that they're just going to go absolutely bananas with the lore and with the stories. Now, I don't know the team that's running Avowed. It may be a completely different team from the Pillars of Eternity project. But I still expect that they're going to stick with that Obsidian masterclass writing. Whether or not they put a, a lore book out, I'm not trying to say. I, I I trust that they are going to have compelling characters and compelling culture, and they're going to really sell that world to us, as they as they often do, at least in my opinion. I'm kind of a fan of Obsidian, if you couldn't tell, so, you know, no surprise there. But anyways, that's the only thing I'm going to say about Avowed, is that, personally, I'm expecting a great representation of the cultures that exist, and making it feel real, and giving you, like that lived-in reality of this fantasy world that you can dive into it and make a whole podcast out of it, as is evident here. So with that said, that's everything for today's episode. Thanks everyone for joining me on this 40-ish minute talk about the second half of the Huana culture. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that this gave you some inspiration for your own tabletop games. I hope this made you want to replay Pillars of Eternity 2, Deadfire, or play it for the first time. Uh, If you are going to play it for the first time, or if you have played it before and you want to talk about something that I missed, or talk about something related to that I didn't quite cover as much, or an error I made, you can email me, worldofaora at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter, at worldofaora. I usually just post updates of when episodes are out, but if anything else Aor related comes up, I'll obviously post it there as well. Um, And I like having conversations about this stuff, so if you have questions about the world, about the show, and about any of this stuff, send me an email, even criticisms, I love getting that stuff. Uh, So, look forward to hearing from some of you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this today's episode about the other half of the Huana culture. We dived into their virtues and vices and looked at their myths and legends. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed this. I hope you enjoyed this. I'm going to end the episode now. I've been your host, Eric, a.k.a. Gingerino, and I'll catch you guys next time.